Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm David Jenkins. And I'm Monica Castillo. On the show this week, the DC launches a new superhero in Blue Beetle. I spoke to the team behind bringing back the Edinburgh Film Festival in 2023, after we nearly lost it in 2022. An uptight novelist returns to his home time and to memories of his first love in Lie With Me. And on Film Club, its first loves prove just as potent in Merchant Ivory's Maurice. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. Monica, very excited to have you on the podcast. I've been a fan of yours for a while. I feel like kind of you know, kind of a bit like a like a girl beating like a little bit of a, like one of her heroes. Like I absolutely oh, love your writing. I'm I'm much too honored. Thank you so much. I'm I'm thrilled to be here. But for people who, for impossible reasons that I cannot fathom, that aren't familiar with your work. Who is it that you are and what do you do? <laughs> it's a good question. Well, so I've mostly been a film critic for the past 10 plus years, mostly as a freelancer, working for various outlets like The New York Times, Washington Post, NBC News, NPR. And now I am also programming in addition to that. So I program for the Jacob Burns Film Center out in Pleasantville, New York. Um, but I'm still doing movie reviews and I'm, I'm thrilled to be back at the swing of things talking movies 24 7 yeah there is no no shortage of that around these parts i feel like uh, that's almost like the language that i now communicate through things you know just being like hey it's kind of a like fight club situation that's going on or like our, our interaction is basically like paris texas or whatever it's, it's definitely its own dialect <laughs> although uh, those two examples did make my life sound a lot more exciting than it is david also welcome back Although, never sure whether or not to welcome you in these scenarios, because technically you're in charge. Oh, no, I, 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 lo- I love to be going? welcomed. I love to be welcomed. I'm still still in the, in the, in the glow of the, the Barbenheimer double bill episode. I'm still, still catching my breath from those ones, which was super fun. But yeah, no, I'm, I'm kind of deep, deep down the rabbit hole of the 100th issue of Little White Lies, which we're kind of desperately trying to make as as awesome as possible and you know it's one of those i think it's one i I don't want to say too much about it because you know the surprise is is going to be it's going to hopefully be fun for people but like you know it is one of those things where you do we're starting to lose the perspective of like you know what what is this thing you know it's is it gained a life of its own is it getting out of control um i will say that we've definitely hit that point where we've got like we're trying we're maybe trying to fit too much in 
to the confines of a 128-page print magazine. So it's it's all about being finding being clever and trying to sort of like n- not make it feel like we've crowbarred the material in and actually designed it to look absolutely beautiful and uh, and fun to engage with. So that's been part part of my life for the last month or so. But big big shout out to Loren Boglio, who's the art director of the the magazine. Who she's based in uh, East Hampton, Massachusetts, out in the countryside there, in a little kind of very cool little house in the country. And uh, we have like daily Google Meets for 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 an hour plus at a time, and we go just combing through everything over and over again i know that's probably a bit tmi but you know just to give you a sense of my world right now so it's obviously nice to get out to the cinema and see blue beetle for a treat (laughs) yeah well i think of you as being so synonymous with the magazine but what was your first issue like you you haven't been editor for all no no so actually like the first issue i ever wrote for was issue one so yeah like it yeah yeah so but but i sort of wrote was was with them for a bunch of issues and i i went away and worked somewhere else and then i kind of came back and i think i missed the 20s through 30s and came back at the early 40s and have been have been with with them ever since so in 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 various capacities yeah this is this is my other kind of fangirl moment where i realized that that time before little white lies when you were at time out that you were around when they gave something a six star review like that the budding film critic in me this was like a monumentous event yeah i I gave um kelly reichert's wendy and lucy six stars and lots of the other kind of hoity-toity london critics were were biting their thumb at me for for such idiocy but but who's laughing now eh? yeah. who's laughing now not to go full kind of paul rudd look at us now but like we're friends <laughs> now and we work together how look nice is now. that <laughs> But yeah, in some other news, this is coming out on Friday and I'm hoping some potential applicants will be listening because you have until the end of the day in order to apply for this. So um, yeah, Hannah Strong, Little White Lies' digital editor, has teamed up with Hannah Flint, who's a wonderful film critic, and they've set up a fund for writers and journalists from low-income households that want to cover the London Film Festival. So if anybody needs financial support doing so, they've raised a huge amount of money. It's been absolutely incredible please do apply and if you're wondering if the fund is for you you know honestly there's no that you know there's no harm in applying but generally they want people who either earn less than twenty five thousand pounds a year live beyond the m25 are in full or part-time education are unemployed or in receipt of benefits uh, have childcare or caring responsibilities have to take unpaid leave to attend the festival or travel to london and accommodation is another expense that you'll have or you've got a physical disability neurodivergence or related condition like all of those things if any of those things apply for you please apply to the scheme you can find it through hannah strong's or through hannah flint's uh, social medias they're posting about it all of the time and like there is there's just a giant pot of money and like let's give it to some great people right so speaking of great people <laughs> that is what how can i segue from that into like beetle? <laughs> now back to the movies <laughs> yes and now back to the movies not ones that are premiering at festivals but uh certainly out this week first up it's blue beetle Join our community of film lovers by becoming a Little White Lies member who receive exclusive perks and an insider's view into the world of Little White Lies while directly supporting our independent film journalism. Search Little White Lies membership via your search engine and click through to our Steady 8 page for a detailed breakdown of the plans. Now on to the movies. 
After Jaime Reyes graduates from college and returns to his hometown, Palmera City, he is chosen to become a symbiotic host for the Scarab, an ancient alien biotechnological relic that grants him powerful exoskeleton armour, turning him into the superhero Blue Beetle. So, like, Monica, we're kind of in a bit of a strange stage with the DC because we're sort of wrapping up one era. James Gunn is going to kind of take everything in a very different direction. After seeing this film, do you feel like Blue Beetle should be part of the ongoing plan? Oh, I certainly hope we get a sequel. They they certainly tease to it. And I think there's enough interesting things going on in the world building that I want to see what's next. You know, I know the Flash didn't do so hot and the last Shazam sequel also not as great, but I really... Like this was actually a, a hopeful turn. I know a lot of folks have been down on superhero movies lately, myself included. Um, and I was pleasantly surprised at how much fun this actually was, how much I enjoyed it, how many jokes there were, how much I enjoyed the family and in introducing all the different characters. I really got emotionally invested in this story. Yeah, I, I was pleasantly surprised as well, I must say. Maybe it's because the last time I was in that room with David, we were watching the Shazam sequel. And so, like, the expectations were so incredibly low. But I, I, I thought this was a pleasant surprise. Myself included. <laughs> I was really bracing for this. I didn't know what to expect, especially after so many misfires. But I kind of feel like this is a not quite in the vein as the Into the Spider-Verse uh, sequel, where this is like very creative, very visually stunning. But mining different aspects of the character to make him interesting, especially more of his backstory, more of his uh, culture and including family into the mix in a way that, you know, a lot of superheroes have kind of just let that go. If there's a love interest, maybe that we're lucky. But for the most latest sequels that I remember, it's been a lot more about, you know, whatever new, I don't know, Infinity Stone gathering thing that comes up or whatever new random crisis the Earth has to be saved from. And that's not the thing that I remember about the superheroes. It's more about the characters and the stories that come with them. Yeah, I agree. It did. It almost felt like in some ways a film from the 90s. Like it was kind of a back to basics before we got into like a million multiverses and whatever the flash was about um <laughs> david you actually defended the flash but like, what, what did you make of blue beetle yeah i don't know what it is i'm i'm sort of I, i'm i'm kind of for some reason maybe i'm just too sheltered at the moment but I'm, i am i'm sort of quite soft on these films and i still i still think this that obviously the, the 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 people had had their own things to say about the flash but you know yeah i was sort of softer on it than, than I, I know most people were but this has always been a bit of a strange film for me because like when i'm kind of planning the magazine and we you know we're looking far far ahead in the schedules and I kept seeing this film Blue Beetle that had been sort of locked in, into this spot for, for a fair while. And I'd always, I'd look up what it was, but then I'd always, I'd keep forgetting it that like, and usually like the, the marketing for these films is so kind of like pummeling and ubiquitous, especially when it's like a, a slightly less known property like this. What, one of the things that these studios do well is actually hammering home the the property, the identity of the film and, 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 and at least making you kind of know yes, it's part of this wider series and that's why you need to kind of take it seriously in your kind of planning and schedules. And, you know, even go, even kind of going into it, I wasn't entirely sure what I was expecting, to be honest. And I'd spoken to some friends who who told me, like, in terms of, like, the comic books, it, it has been sort of 
ripped from. It's like that that those comics were again a little a little less well known, a little bit more arcane, and they had a, a small but dedicated fan base and were unique in in the way that it was you know one of the first kind of major superheroes to deal with like Latino Hispanic culture and 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 characters, and and I and I actually thought. When I when 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 the film started, I, I must say for about the first twenty or thirty minutes, I, I really had a kind of like, oh man, we're we're doing this again kind of moment where it's like we have the gawky hero and he's he's kind of stumbling over and making these these kind of goofy mistakes and you know you're introduced to the family and you're you're almost sort of waiting for the sort of bits to slot into place because you kind of you know that we we are so like. In, you know, immersed in these in the in these films and these arcs and these storylines that we just know what's going to happen next. But yeah, I, I actually I think that the film kind of shifts into a slightly different gear and is is much more enjoyable and and probably like does is is much more kind of sincere and moving for the sort of slightly different direction it takes. And yeah, going from what you said, Monica, I mean, it re- I think I think without putting too fine a point on it, it really is a, it is a film about family and not in the kind of like Fast and Furious way of just being like, we need to be a family, families are good. It's actually like, it's it, it sort of does a thing with the narrative where it's not about the superhero saving the family, it's about the family saving the superhero. And it's kind of done in this really quite creative way. It's a small twist on the formula that actually kind of, that, that makes it like more entertaining than I, and, and, and deep than I would have expected. I mean, not to, to kind of reduce it down to too much, but um, I, I also just thought Jaime was adorable. Like, I mean, like, Monica, for you, I mean, how did he work as a central character? Oh, uh, Jolo Maridueña does such a great job uh, playing both, you know, gawky kid coming into his own superpowers and, you know, taking charge and fighting for his family, but also like accepting his family's help. Like he's, there's moments where he's embarrassed by how supportive his family is and they really sometimes go out there. But at the same time, like he loves them for it. You can still see that. He's great. I I remember seeing him on the Cobra Kai show on Netflix and remember thinking like, oh, dang, like this kid's got potential. So to see him in this role, to see what he does in it, like it's a real kind of breakout moment. I mean, we do, of course, have uh, that kind of typical thing of he's got this love interest. I don't know that I believed anything between the two of them. That was not a part that I loved. (laughs) I'll say that. There are certain (laughs) things that I wasn't, as charmed by and that was maybe one of them but i think the dynamic between jamie and the reyes family is incredible it reminded me a bit of black panther in that what david was saying earlier that the family saves the hero like the whole act of rallying around him is really moving and surprising. We don't always get to see all the characters step up in the way that they get to step up in Blue Beetle. And it's really an ensemble piece. Yeah, I mean, I did just find that, that Jenny McCord, char- Jenny Cord character, who is kind of this like billionaire heiress who helps him, like is kind of presented as being this like morally good billionaire, like some billionaires are great. But then like she does so the bare minimum at every stage, like to the point where it's just like, I feel like they could have gotten a lot more out of her if they just sued her for corporate malfeasance <laughs> or something. I did think Susan Sarandon did a, a fun job as jumping into the villain role as Victoria Cord, Jenny Cord's aunt. That was kind of fun to see. Although the whole plan uh, that she cooks up is a little maybe nebulous. I don't 
know about all the details that work for me, but I, I think she's just having fun. And that kind of helps set the tone for the movie itself. Oh, I have to disagree. Oh, okay. I think she was absolutely dreadful. <laughs> um, <laughs> she was like comically crap. But for me, in a weird way, watching a film that is filled with kind of like people of color, if, if our one white actor is the weak link, that feels kind of weirdly empowering. To <laughs> That's pretty fair. There's a lot of empowerment in the family. I have to give a special shout out to George Lopez. He provides a lot of the punchlines, a lot of the physical comedy, whatever costume they gave him. Incredible. <laughs> it was so out there. Um, and of course, like the other things that he brings to the movie is is quite fun. And he becomes like a really integral part of the story. Yeah, I think it takes a little bit for me to kind of for, to kind of warm up to what George is doing, but like I think by the second act he is really very very charming. I mean, David, this this film I think is a lot more colorful than a lot of the superhero films that we've been used to seeing, particularly from DC. Did that kind of aesthetic work for you? Yeah, I mean, the vibe I got was kind of 80s and like kind of Miami Vice purple and blue fluoro and you know you, you you kind of there's a shot earlier on where you see the landscape where you see where the reyes family live and out in the distance is the big kind of metropolis with all these skyscrapers and they've got this they've got kind of these these sort of let you know fluorescent lights on lighting up the sky yeah it has it has got this kind of 80s vibe to it and and i think it maybe sort of allies it with some of the more kind of colorful marvel movies and actually one of the films that it reminded me of a little bit probably the most and i I don't know whether this even counts as a superhero movie but it reminded me of the film the mask the Jim Carrey film, because not Secret only do you Loki have this prequel. kind of like, <laughs> well, yeah, you, you you have this kind of mask that that kind of connects, you know, the, it just sort of like suctions onto him in the same way that the mask does. That like the power of the the suit can essentially, cre- you know, you can cre- he can create any weapon in his hands, which is kind of like it has that sort of like almost Looney Tunes esque vibe to it. But just a note on, you know, I, I think that the sur- surrounding character for me again keys into this 80s 80s vibe that the whole thing's going on she she definitely feels like a in her kind of private police force loving mission she she kind of recalls the 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 famous uh, Ronnie Cox character in RoboCop who's trying to uh, take over the public police force with his like private army of 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 killer robots and um you know, i think i think she's really kind of ch- channeling the kind of pantomime corporate ceo villainy of of that that kind of role it's it's a very it feels like you know the brief she was given was go 80s you know go 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 kind of full cackling evil corporate bastard role but you know she was clearly having fun i'm not sure it's probably one a performance that she's gonna have on her kind of oscar reel or you know lifetime achievement award reel but you know who knows who knows yeah obviously the military industrial complex is a huge thing particularly in america but there were points in this where it just really overstretched it i mean like who are we fighting at this point saturn i mean (laughs) why could anyone possibly need this level of like giant super soldier army i don't know that there's actually enough conflict in the world well that's a that robocop argument i also kind of thought that with the character of carapax it's absolutely power for the sake of power i don't know that they establish like the express need but there's always like the fear of just needing to control population 
and also exploit them as well and exploit them yeah and and there's actually some really like although like the for the main it's a kind of fun kind of knockabout comedy film i think it disarms you with a couple of small moments where it it kind of just touches on a detail or delivers you a little backstory that that actually makes you know give gives the film a bit of a sort of like slightly mel- melancholy undertow but but also you know i think the the thing the thing that's nice nice about it and and i think that just makes it stand out above this kind of pack of superhero films is that it's made by people who really kind of like understand and want to celebrate the the culture even though i mean you know there's there, there is the kind of 80s aesthetic and there's these robocop and uh, uh, like references but there's also like there, there's so many references to a variety of mexican culture through the soundtrack choices these really really fun like covers of of like english language pop songs and then you have like i think you know you have references to like these you know the 50s kind of Mexican wrestler movies and and you know all, all this other st- all this other stuff like yeah like kids cartoons in there. In fact, I, I thought it was cool where there's a scene where where Uncle Rudy jams a signal to a security system and this kind of stop weird stop motion animation starts playing. And I, I had no, I mean I had no idea what, where that was from, but it was it was just brilliant that there was like a one one guy in the background who was like, hey, it's, I love this show, you know. And it's it even though you don't know, you kind of you get this sense of like you know there's there's these really important parts of cultures and you know obviously like tel- the telenovelas as well make like this constant in in joke about this one i don't even know if that was again i don't know if that's made, was the one they reference constantly is like a real thing or it, it is <laughs> I was in heaven oh, with okay. all those there references um, because it was stuff that I grew up or jokes that I grew up with. The stop motion animation is actually of a live action show called the Chapulín Colorado. And that, you know, aired on in the States. It was on Univision in Mexico. It was Televisa that that started in the 80s and then just kept going. Maria de la Barrio. Uh, that was also one of the telenovelas that you see, you know, Nana watching and they make the joke because it's a, it's a poor character who falls in love with a, another rich character. And in this case, it's Jamie falling in love for the rich girl. So they're calling him Maria <laughs> because he's the poor character. You know, a quick second shot of Salvador Gigante and all, all those different references. I mean, it was for, you know, the one guy to go like, hey, I used to love watching that. Um, yeah. But even <laughs> if you didn't watch that stuff, like, it's still funny. It still works. People still understand like, oh, that's the show that grandma watches or, you know, oh, that's a that's a weird old cartoon. <laughs> I to- totally. And, I, and I, I just think that so many of these films, like the references they use are so like they, they've been kind of you know, boredom blasted to, to death where it's like, no, everyone has to know where this reference comes from. We have to, we have to have someone saying what it is and we have to explain, you know, it's like, no, we don't need to do that. It's just like, let's just immerse the viewer in the culture and they will, they will know, you know? So, you know, I think it, it, it kind of wields those, those references really nicely. Uh, I was super excited that they didn't translate everything to death, which was actually a conscious choice um, by the director. You understand, you know, the emotion behind the words, even if you don't understand it. But there is something funny, like they always call him Flaco, Skinny. And that's like just his nickname. And it's it's meant with affection. And that's, you know, how our families kind of talk to each other. Um, You know, when someone says mijo, they don't always explain my son. (laughs) It's just that they're referring to him. And that that was like a really sweet thing uh, where it's not just like a bunch of text at the bottom, but you still get like 
oh, they're talking to him and it's, it's words of kindness. It's, you know, support. It's, it's just really sweet. I, I love the recurring joke of Hami's name being mispronounced as Jamie all the time, even though often it's in spoken conversations, because I think that is actually something that can happen quite a lot. It's not that they're reading it aloud and getting it wrong. Like There is also that kind of like microaggression of like, I refuse to pronounce a J in the way that, uh, that your language uh, requires. And that was a running joke with Harvey Guillen's character, where they Victoria Cord keeps calling him a doctor's name that isn't his name. Mm. That that microaggression, yes. which uh, in my audience had a lot of people both laughing and going mm, <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> yeah, no, he is he is a delightful actor, isn't he? I mean, I cannot see him as anything but Guillermo from What We Do in the Shadows, but I'm still excited to see Guillermo from What We Do in the Shadows show up in pretty much anything. More Guillermo, yes, I I agree with that. <laughs> Um, I mean, I would say, I mean, this isn't kind of uh, unadulterated praise. This has a lot of the problems that like a lot of superhero films have, like some of the plot points don't exactly, you know, uh, flow that well. It is too long. We do end up with a sort of final act, which is largely people kind of blasting each other in a way that's like you know not that exciting were there any kind of like striking flaws that stood out to you monica yeah i think it's it's a lot of more of like the superhero business like that's not what made me laugh or really kept me entertained not that it went to the level of like a cw show but it it does remind me of like, oh, this is just part of the process. This is what you have to include in order to get back to the other parts that were much more enjoyable. That's where sometimes the movie slowed for me. And then, of course, it's always the, will this get a sequel? Because it does certainly build up to it. And then there's the whole, you know, moving forward. And that, what's that question? What's that going to look like? So now I want it, but I'm also afraid because we've had instances where there wasn't a sequel. We don't get those stories finished. So now that I'm in suspense. <laughs> I couldn't help but like really chuckle at the fact that like it's Jenny Cord when she goes to kind of and her long lost father who was kind of part of the original Blue Beetle and we only see him in an oil painting which is fuzzy enough to know that they can like have a bit of flexibility with casting. It's probably Jason Sudeikis, I would say, but they haven't like gotten him to sign. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I, I totally noticed that too, but completely forgot about it. That is eagle-eyed viewing. But yeah, I mean, David, like beyond the kind of regular like superhero nonsense that we've sort of become like numb to, I mean, do you think there were any like massive mistakes that were made in bringing Blue Beetle to the screen? Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say like anything massive. I. Th I think you know it. It, uh, it. It just. Yeah. Echoing what you both said, basically, there's just something inherently. I mean, you know, the, I don't think depressing is is too strong a word for it. About the seeing films with this kind of the same sort of DNA, structural DNA to them. The plot itself is such a kind of muscle memory thing that you don't. You almost don't need to engage with it. I mean, it, yeah, like yeah, I, I watch these films and I, just, I, I do wonder, like, well, there must be more variations. There must be more ways to tell these stories. Or I think I remember, I think the one thing, the one film that always comes back to me is is um, Iron Man 3, which I, I, I don't remember if people loved or not, but that was a kind of, it's a strange film, but it's sort of, it, it was a real, like, it was the first time where I thought, okay, there is potential to, to, to actually switch these stories up a bit. 
And then since then, it seems they've reverted very kind of aggressively back to the kind of, no, no, we're just going to have like baddies v. goodies and, and you know, big big fight at the end and it's got to it's got to out blast and we've got to have crazy cgi i think i think maybe what like one of the things that this had going for it which maybe that might sound like a backhanded compliment but like it didn't seem too ambitious in its use of cgi i mean it was like there was sort of robots fighting and there was kind of a bit of flying and some a few explosions but i think that like a film like the flash definitely Pushed the CGI aspect way, way beyond the capabilities of the of of the of the technicians, and for most critics, it became a, a big stumbling block for, for for enjoyment in the film. And actually, I think uh, you know you, you you could easily say with Blue Beetle that, that I, at the very least, people are not going to be complaining about the CGI because it's sort of there's not that much of it. You know, it's like what 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 there is is kept quite sort of simple and uh it's not pushing anything too far that you you get to a point where it's like oh god that's that's really kind of gaudy and horrible so you know i think i think it's you know it's a film where it kind of that it knows its limits i think or, or it knows you know that it doesn't need to to sort of like push those aspects too far too hard maybe that is damning with faint praise but i think you know within the kind of confines of the kind of product level of like what people are expected to make. I really do feel that um, Angel Manuela Soto, you know, made room for something, for some really, like, lovely moments. But yeah, let's get some scores on this because we've got two more movies to discuss. David, do you want to go first? In anticipation, enjoyment, and in retrospect? Sure. I would say anticipation is probably a two because I was just, like, you know, as I kept saying, it was just something that I was, like, I was worried that the, that the publicists weren't working hard enough to to implant this in my brain. And then probably I'd say it's like probably a high three for enjoyment in retrospect. I was ve- I was kind of like elements I really liked about it, but then I think there's a, the the fundamental superhero ness of it kind of dragged me down for for maybe longer than I would have hoped for. But maybe I I I, I maybe slightly differ on you differ with you on like whether whether we need a sequel or not. I'm I'm not sure yet. And Monica, what about you? In anticipation, enjoyment and retrospect? Yeah, I think I'm I'm similar with David in terms of anticipation. I like liked the director's previous work, Angel Manuel Soto. I liked Sholo and Cobra Kai, so it was but I was nervous because they put it in August. You know, that's usually not, you know, the kinds of films that they're, you know, building a lot of anticipation for or it's kind of a slow month usually for movies. So I was very, very hesitant going in, maybe so a two, two and a half. Um, but then having seen it, I think I would rate my, I give myself a four out of enjoyment. I had way too much fun with those pop culture references, the actually enjoying a superhero movie for the first time in what feels like years <laughs> was a great relief. Other than the Into the Spider-Verse, which I also really enjoyed. Um, and a live action superhero movie then, I guess. And then in retrospect, I think that four kind of holds maybe three and a half thinking about like the parts that didn't quite work for me. But for the most part, I'm I'm pretty much on Team Blue Beetle. I, I want to see him again. I don't want him to go away. <laughs> Oh, I'm I'm with you. I want to see him again. Um, for me, in anticipation, maybe, I mean, is there minus 47? I cannot tell you how much like DC has disappointed me of late. And they did also seem to be kind of burying this one. 
probably a three in enjoyment. I found myself with my notes getting a little bit into kind of like, well, this kind of plot structure doesn't really make sense. And, you know, oh, I think I'm going to need them to kind of specify exactly whose side Nana was on in all these various revolutions, because, you know, those little things were slightly distracting. But yeah, probably like, if again, to cheat, probably like a 3.8 I kind of wish that this didn't exist in the giant world of superhero films that it does because it makes it so predictable and so it it doesn't feel that fresh in sort of a lot of the mechanics of it. But I haven't had a good time at one of these for a really, really long time. And um, George Lopez, I can see why you're a national treasure. Before we get into the next film, I spoke to Kate Taylor and Tamara Van Stratham about the festival returning. Edinburgh is returning like a phoenix from the flames, and this is what its attendees have to look forward to. All right, so this year's festival, I mean, it does feel like it's been a chance to kind of reimagine what the Edinburgh Festival could be. I mean, was that something that you guys were thinking about, like taking this opportunity to kind of shake up what it's always been? Well, I think that every year festivals are kind of in a state of metamorphosis. Every year you've got a different collection of films, a different kind of chemistry between the films and obviously different audiences interacting with them and the kind of the times in which they're presented. So to some extent, I think festivals are in a constantly changing their form. Last year, I guess, felt like quite a change. Um, we opened with After Sun and we closed with After Yang. And there were lots of changes that we made to the program in terms of how it interacted with audiences and the kind of vibes of it that we felt really happy with. So I suppose mm-hmm. we absolutely have had to do um, a huge amount of uh, reimagining like everything from an organizational perspective, like, you know, coming from a a collapse up to 100% within a very short period of time. But kind of program-wise, I think the flavor of screening works by first-time filmmakers, screening works that are bold, that are pushing forward stories that we don't think are necessarily represented, going for works that are formally really interesting, kind of really super stylish work. Yeah, I think that's something that we're kind of building on rather than reinventing. I mean, did you kind of like now feel like there's been a huge outpouring of support and like a lot of anticipation for this festival because people were so upset at the thought that it might not come back. And, you know, it's almost like we'd, we'd, we're not used to getting such good news as to hear that it is. Yes, we've definitely benefited from an incredible amount of love and support and encouragement from individuals and organisations throughout the city and, and way beyond, of course, and beyond the country as well. We're very grateful for that support. It has buoyed us through the last nine months and we can't, I don't think we could imagine when we first started working together as a team, when we started coming together as a team, the team that's delivering the festival, there was obviously... um involvement prior to that from people planning and, and, and trying to scope out what the festival could be this year. But I think that um we never really thought that we would be at this at this stage, at this time, able to deliver such a beautiful program, such an outward looking program as well. Uh, and it's uh it's testament to the de- dedication of our team, of course, but it's also very much the result of that support that you've alluded to, which has enabled us to find a home, to find spaces to um to to exhibit the work. And to get that confidence as well from audiences to come back to the festival. It's been a wild ride. It's been a a very intense few months. But I think 
the the response we could have gone one way which would be to play it very safe or just take that faith and that love mm-hmm. to try and uh to keep pushing things forward and i think that's what we've done in terms of yeah the the actual flavor of the films that we've uh, selected the kind of mix that we've got for audiences and like with that kind of outpouring of love, I mean, not, not just from institutions, but just, you know, fans, social media, all of those things. Was there anything from that that you heard that was what people thought made this festival so special that you wanted to take on board when you were programming it again? Yeah, I guess I guess the thing is, is there's so many different versions of Edinburgh International Film Festival that people have and so many different um, elements be it a film that they've seen, someone that they've met at an industry event, or someone that they've met quite randomly, or an encounter with a filmmaker, uh, a certain kind of Q&A. I think, it's, I think it's about community. It's about that sense of feeling that a festival belongs to you and that also mm-hmm. that you belong as part of the festival. And so that's really what we want to try and put at the forefront. Like it's a different scale this year. Like the number of films is way fewer than it has been, but it's about trying to create an environment where people can have conversations. Cause it's often, yeah, it's often the people that you meet are the things that actually really stay with you and that you care about. And that's also from filmmakers perspectives as well, like making sure that there's a space for them to meet each other and being in Edinburgh in August in the middle of, you know, the International Festival, the Fringe, the Art Festival, the Book Festival. There's so many interesting people in town. And I think, you know, with with our limited resources, what we want to do is make sure that we're making the most of that too. So having filmmakers being able to meet other creative people, like at the top of their game, but also putting cinema as part of that conversation, like film is an art form. And that was something as well that we felt maybe needs restating sometimes and festivals can be a place to to do that. And now with kind of doing a smaller program that you normally would do, I mean, does, I mean, imagine that gets quite a good response from the filmmakers because they want to be able to kind of take up a bit more space and not be kind of drowned out by the fact that, that there's so many other films that are kind of taking the attention. We, we, we hope so. We hope the filmmakers are, uh, are happy with it. I mean, we, we're, we're just about to launch the program. So we're, um, we're really excited to do that and to, and to get their responses. Absolutely. I think, Edinburgh has been a place where particularly UK filmmakers have really launched into the world. And that's something that we're very conscious of. And we want to make sure that we're constantly positioning those films as best we can. So absolutely, having fewer films means potentially more press attention, more of a spotlight on those films and just a bit more room for them to breathe. So, you know, that's also possibly a place where you can have more depth for audiences because, you know, it's it's scheduled like a journey. Audiences are seeing the same films. So then they can have conversations with each other. So, yeah, we really hope that that each film gets the kind of attention that it deserves. And, you know, all kind of uh, festivals are kind of defined also by the city that they're in, the place that's hosting them, that's hosting everyone that comes to attend them. Is there anything that you're doing to kind of make Edinburgh feel like in possession of this film festival, that this is kind of something that is very much about it as a city as well? Absolutely. And that was very much at the front of our minds when we were programming and um, when we're choosing the nature of the interactions that audiences in Edinburgh could have with the films that we presented to them. So I think that takes different shapes this year, but one of the one of the most obvious ones is the outdoors cinema screen 
that we are installing in the University of Edinburgh's Old College Quad, which is an absolutely sumptuous space within the city. And we're really pleased to be able to bring back the outdoor screening to the city. And we're doing so by presenting a very collected mix of films within that space as well. Films that also nod to the International Festival. Two of the films that we're presenting were scored by uh, composers who have uh, work at the International Festival this year, but also working with other festivals across Scotland's exhibition landscape and bringing those to Edinburgh too. So we're working with um, Hippodrome Silent Film Festival to present a screening of Safety Last on its 100th anniversary and we also screening a film of artist Joe Park's short films that were commissioned and supported by Alchemy Film and Arts um, so there's different ways in which we're inviting the city to be in conversation with us but as Kate has already mentioned it's also about making the most of the fact that Edinburgh in August is a, is a festival city that there's an mm-hmm. abundance of creativity and appreciation for art in all its forms. And we wanted cinema to very much be part of that. I mean, I, I absolutely adore the entire um, Fringe Festival and you know, the Book Festival and everything. So, I mean, like, are there kind of connections between those all? Or is there like a bit of a sense of competition for who's going to get kind of the most important slot? I think there's a lot of love between the festivals, a lot of admiration and a lot of respect. And we all work in slightly different ways. And I think we can complement one another rather than compete for attention. And I think the other thing that we can do is to invite these connections for audiences themselves to make between the, the works that are being produced. We're really excited this year to be collaborating with both the Art Festival and the Book Festival for a series of events that will bring creatives in um, conversation with one another uh, that are public events. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that that's something we would want to elaborate on further. We, we've only been able to work with a fraction of the partners we'd like to work with this year because of the, the more compact scale of our festival. But I think that sense of building something bigger together rather than competing for space is very much at the heart of our approach. Mm. Yeah, the fact that the Edinburgh International Festival like stepped in in our hour of need and basically are hosting us this year is very much speaks to that. That kind of collaboration and yeah as Tamara says we're, we're, we're all working on really different timelines and with kind of slightly different kind of audience expectations but I guess the exciting thing is just how hardcore like Edinburgh audiences are for culture you really feel like your programming you, you've got to bring your your programming game it's got to be uh you know yeah, there's a curiosity that's really exciting. Um, and I guess that comes from all sorts of other things in the city to do with its history and to do with its um, inquisitiveness and innovation and all that stuff. But um, yeah, add, it's kind of a pleasure. I should add also, sorry, in terms of working with the city, I think also working with the University of Edinburgh is, is also a recognition of the appetite for intellectual debate and curiosity that exists within the city year round. And that is underpinned by many other um, organizations and institutions year round. So we really want to tap into that too as a festival that happens at one moment in time. And um, I, I mean, just speaking of the program itself, it really does seem to be kind of at the forefront of creativity. Like you've got, just having a look at some of the films that you have, you've got quite a lot of genre and it feels quite experimental. I mean, is that how you kind of wanted to position this? If like this is, these are films that are doing something new. Yeah, I don't know about new. I definitely agree. Um, I think we've got a lot of filmmakers who are kind of making a really thrilling use of genre to look at social issues, to look at psychological issues, to look at sexual issues. 
I think that's definitely there. And it's something that um, probably reflects what we respond to as a, as a team. I think the fact that something like Joram, the Indian film, is like such a, uh, a kind of pulse racing thriller. It really does hit all of those genre beats in a very kind of exciting way. And yet the depth that it discusses things like land rights and exploitation of indigenous people is a film that I just couldn't stop thinking about afterwards. So it's like as a big screen experience, it definitely, I mean, it's a film where um, a guy goes on the run with a three month old baby. So there's a huge amount of like peril kind of built in already. But yeah, the the kind of nuance that the filmmaker brings to it is is great. And I think we've got a few of those across the program. And it's really exciting to see UK filmmakers as well, like really trying to push genre forward. So a film like Femme as well from um, Sam H. Freeman and Ung Chun Ping really is is them exploring how you would take a kind of contemporary kind of neo-noirish thriller set in London and place queer characters at the very centre of it to look at, um, you know, the the kind of psychosexual revenge thriller, but kind of with a very, very contemporary twist. I think it's a really bold film. And, and so filmmakers like that, I, I don't know, I guess experimental, I think, yeah, maybe, maybe it's more in terms of filmmakers with a perspective and who are trying mm-hmm. things. And some of the things that they're trying are quite wild. Something like Chuck Chuck Baby, which is, again, really different to the rest of the program. Debut feature from Janice Pugh, women falling in love in a chicken processing factory in North Wales with some songs. She's doing all sorts of things with like form and very much emphasizing kind of working class women, resilience and joy. Yeah. I mean, two totally different films, but like we're, we're here for it. And we think that we'd like to make a place for it in the program. I mean, just reading the program, the thing that kept happening to me, it, I mean, it was all so exciting and I just want to watch absolutely everything, but it almost felt like every time I read the kind of plot summary, I read the first sentence, think I kind of understood what this film was. And the second sentence, I'd be like, excuse me, what? <laughs> <laughs> and then the third, mm-hmm. I was like, aha, okay, this is something I have never seen before. And that kept happening. I think maybe that says something uh, about our writing. I hope, we, I hope we're representing the films, you know, c- correctly. Um, <laughs> but I think we're, we're, perhaps it also reflects that what we're trying to do is, um, obviously we're very passionate about the films and we have to kind of rein that in sometimes. And maybe we, we don't always with the, the program notes, but, um, I guess it's about emphasizing the pleasures. We want people to be able to find the films that speak to them. So it's mm-hmm. not necessarily, we want people to take risks, absolutely. And to, to trust us. But it's also, you know, if you, it's like sending out a signal, like if this is a conversation you're interested in having, then then come and see this. So I think that's what we try to do. Yeah, I guess bold was what kind of, I was going to take one kind of summary of like, oh, what do you think the Edinburgh program is like? I was like, it sounds really bold, but I mean, that is as the highest of compliments. Like there's such an idea of like what a Sundance film is, like being kind of like a dramedy that's kind of got some indie actors and it's sort of a bit heartwarming. But like, I feel like there is no typical Edinburgh film. Like it can be anything. (laughs) Like, Yeah, I think it's, I guess there's no typical audience member, like anywhere, mm-hmm. really. And um, 
Yeah, I, I mean, I guess in terms of like flavor, we're drawing very much where the festival is in the calendar. We're drawing very much from the start of the year. So drawing from um, from Sundance, from Berlin, from uh, Rotterdam, and then researching kind of other uh, festivals after that. So yeah, I wonder if there is a, I mean, thank you for saying bold, first of all, <laughs> because that is a huge compliment. And, and I think that the films definitely warrant it. But yeah, I don't know if you can say maybe after this year, uh, we can ask you and, 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 mm-hmm. and if you had to say this is a kind of Edinburgh film, that would be, that would be useful for us to know. Well, I mean, I guess it's, um, innovative, I suppose, would be the way that you'd want to vision things. Like I mean, the most exciting thing in cinema is going in and not really knowing what's, to expect and having your socks blown off. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I think if I can talk about a film that really exemplifies that for us, the first film that we invited... Okay, yes, maybe this is an answer to your question. Um, The first film that we invited this year was Orlando, My Political Biography. And this is a film from that that we saw in in Berlin. It's a debut feature from Paul B. Preciado, who's a writer, a um, curator, and a philosopher. And he basically is reimagining the story of Orlando, but with many different trans performers who start off talking in Virginia Woolf's language and then speak of their lived experience. And it's a total trip of a film. It's really witty. It's really angry. It's kind of polyphonic in a way that does feel innovative, that really feels bold. Some of it is beautiful in terms of like the way it's shot. It's sassy. And it's also a great work of activism. You know, it's a real rallying Mm -hmm. cry for trans liberation. And to have all of that in one film, it was absolutely the first film that we were like, we we desperately want this in the program. This feels to us like what we want to say about cinema or, or, or kind of like some of the questions that we think cinema should be asking. And so that would be maybe more of a, a guiding star than a typical film, but we're delighted to be showing that one for sure. And finally ask, um, like, I mean, obviously one of the highlights of festivals for me are the kind of live events, the Q&As, the intros that you get. Are there any ones that you're particularly excited about? Yeah, so this year we're, um, in terms of what we can announce already, we're working with um, the Book Festival and the Art Festival with a series of Sunday salons. So Ira Sachs, the director of Passages, is going to be in town. Mm -hmm. And Passages has a lot of love in the film team, in the film programming team, for many reasons. But the fact that it's incredibly hot is one of them. To have kind of sexuality on screen that is horny and complex and thorny and, you know, layered. I think we loved the film. And when we were thinking about people coming to town, we spoke to the book festival and they mentioned Brandon Taylor, who's a novelist of real life and new book um, just come out called The Late Americans. Also a fantastic Substack kind of cultural essayist. And his writing is something that we're, that we're all huge fans of and j- just thought it was more like a, a question, like, I really wonder what he will make of this film. I wonder what it will spark in terms of his ideas around intimacy and how that plays out in fiction. Um, yeah, so that's a really exciting one that we've kind of got ready to announce. On top of that, 
We have a series of encounters that are being programmed by Anna Bogotskaya, who's one of the film programmers along with uh, Hafa Salas-Ross. And um, these are kind of themed discussions. So basically, we want to take it beyond the Q&A so that audiences can go a bit deeper into the films. So these are discussions with visiting filmmakers, but potentially other kind of guests who are in the city to really talk through some kind of conceptual ideas about, yeah, what does it take to make a film about somebody else? How can you really know a person or character through the act of filming them? Considering survival as an artist and how do we make work without sacrificing others? And then thinking about belonging and how that permeates a lot of the films in the program. How do we shape stories about fitting in or standing out? So those are just a few, they're kind of being crafted at the moment as the guests start to confirm and we start to kind of shape it up. But um, absolutely, if you want to be, if you want to be having the conversations about film culture in the UK, then we really hope that, that Edinburgh is going to be where they're taking place. Tamara, for you, is there also one particular thing that you're looking forward to? I mean, that just sounds, you know, pump that into my veins, Kate. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm just so excited that the festival itself is taking place. I would find it very, very hard to pick out just one uh, event or um, one conversation. I want I want us to be able to to hold that space for Cinephilia in Edinburgh in August. Um, I'm looking forward to being able to welcome audiences to our screenings and to those conversations that we are nurturing through our programming and through these connections that um, that Kate has been speaking about with other festivals as well in the city. So, no, I, I really can't pick just one thing that I'm excited about. Well, I'm glad that we don't have to pick, to be honest. I mean, it, it just feels that, you know, like after you went um, to a wedding after the pandemic and everybody was just so excited to be at a wedding, I feel like this is the the feeling that everybody I know that's going to Edinburgh has got with them. Oh, that's good. That's good. Well, we're really glad you're coming. Cannot wait. But yeah, uh, that is absolutely brilliant. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
When Stefan returns to his hometown cognac for the first time in 35 years, he meets Lucas, the son of his first love. Stefan and Lucas go on a sometimes painful journey of discovery about who Thomas really was and why he did what he did throughout his life. David, I found this heartbreaking. It's kind of known as a novel as being like the French Brokeback Mountain. I mean, do you think as a film adaptation, it kind of reached those heights? Yeah, I think I, I was aware of it as a novel. We have a book club here at, at, at TCO, and that was one of the books that we were going to be doing doing one week that I couldn't I couldn't make it to, so I didn't I didn't actually get to read that one. But I should have done because then I would have been even more prepared for this 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 here podcast. But yeah, I, I think it's also uh, alongside Brokeback Mountain. I understand that it's kind of definitely the novel was definitely marketed as a kind of if you like, call me by your name as well, which 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 is obviously an, uh, like feels like another touch point, and in fact feels like that we're kind of. For this and, and and Morris, which we're going to cover later, we're, we're sort of entering into the "Call Me by Your Name" extended universe with the rest of the movies on this episode, which is which is no bad thing. But yeah, it's a very the film itself is a very it's kind of like you you it's you, you couldn't imagine a more kind of quintessentially French film in both its milieu, in its emotions, in its dialogue, in its in 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 the sort of, of very, very kind of open hearted sexuality and and desires of the characters and and just in its kind of like it's told in a in a sort of flashback form and it has this sort of very kind of heartstring pulling structure where you have this writer who is who is returning from 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 uh, a life his life in the US back to his hometown for a, for a sort of celebration of his work and and some readings and and I guess you know what the film is about is kind of it deals with the idea of like the, the sort of personal aspects of 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 like autofiction and having to kind of you know the, the 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 difficulty of actually having to to face up to the things that you you've you've written about and exposed about yourself and in this instance the son of of an ex lover is kind of has an encounter with him and then they and they they then sort of go off have and have their own kind of encounter together not not a sexual one but like like a, you know, sort of a nostalgic one in a way, because I think it transpires that both of these characters, there, there are kind of ellipses in the life of, of this mysterious figure who, who was the lover and the father, and both of them kind of want to help each other fill in fill in those blanks. And yeah, it's done in a, it's done in a way that is very, very entertaining, maybe a little stagey at times. I found it, but. Like you know, you, you you keep with it, and it and it and it and it throws a few curveballs out there to keep to keep keep you guessing as to sort of where things are going to go. There was an aspect to it which didn't quite like the whole. I guess a kind of class issue was was maybe in it, was was dealt with dealt with in a way that I didn't find that satisfying. But like, yeah, in all, it was it was it's an interesting film. Yeah, I mean, Monica, were you kind of similarly engaged with it? I mean, did it kind of pull at your heartstrings? It did. I thought it was absolutely effective in in terms of an author having to come to terms with what he's done it kind of reminded me a little bit of the lesson which came out earlier this year and the sort of like front that artists sometimes and authors sometimes put up in order to justify their work and how their work is created so that was kind of interesting but i did love how seamlessly it shifted from the past to the present back and forth 
it colors his behavior differently as the, as the movie goes on. And I thought it was very effective emotionally, you know, the, the you know, the son wants answers and the um, author, you know, isn't inclined to give them because it's a, it's a point of pain. Yeah, I did find this more in tune with my cynical dark heart where it's like we always kind of hear this, like it's better to have loved and lost and to actually... It's why I think I found the present so much more compelling um, in terms of that side of the film because I kind of love this idea of like, oh, no, you can just be broken by love in a way that shuts you off to the world forever. And, um, yeah, deal with that, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, you do get an answer to how that all plays out. It's not like a call me by your name, per se, because you're you're following that relationship through its development and eventual conclusion. Here, you already have the conclusion. You start at the end and then work backwards. Yeah, Michael Stolberg is not showing up to give you a talk. very inspiring speech. <laughs> I mean, did, the, did that for you at all, though, Mean Monica? It was like slightly unsatisfying in that like we did have this kind of like fait accompli, the end to this love story and, and its significance. No, I think I was curious to see like what got him to that point. Because at first you're seeing this very lovely beginning love blossom and then you're getting to the end where he's he's bitter and closed off and you're like, okay, well, something had to have happened from point A to point B. So I'm glad that the film, you know, kind of colors it. Even if it doesn't feel satisfying, that's sometimes all that it takes is, you know, one big heartbreak that is hard to move past. I mean, I suppose that's... Uh what happened to me with the flash i haven't recovered uh, <laughs> david so i mean like it, it doesn't seem to be like in kind of breakback mountain levels for any of us really but was there anything kind of distinct about the film that you feel is worth pointing out i wouldn't I, i'd say distinct is probably like a, a hard one to, to 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 deal with like when i said initially that it's a very french film i guess i also mean that it's part of this kind of this bustling french film industry where they they're just pumping out so much kind of homegrown cinema and you know sometimes it's it's hard to kind of fathom that you know that there's there's probably like three or four of these types of films coming out weekly over there because they actually cater to an audience of adults basically and you know people people who want engaging stories that deal with actual contemporary social issues and and it's not just kind of flashy genre stuff you know there there is a kind of a national appetite for literary drama i guess what you, is what you'd call this one I, it, it's not distinct in so much it it it, it feels like kind of one of the, these generally quite high quality French films that, you know, does come out in the UK, you know, maybe every other week. I mean, the direct, the director is, is not someone who, I, he's someone I, I, the last film I saw by him was in 2008, actually. I saw, I saw a film called like Stolen Holidays, which he, he did, which was starred the, the great French leading lady, Bernadette Lafont, who, who died. I think it was her last film actually. And it was, I, I think I st saw it like, Go, just when I, when I started working at Time Out. So it was a real, like, it was actually the first time I'd experienced one of these kind of French, you know, French dramas. And yeah, it's, 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 it's almost feels a little bit strange to be like, oh, I've, this is the second film, you know, almost 15 years later, I'm now seeing this, this the, the next film by this guy who has, if you look at his filmography, he's, he's made a whole bunch of films in the interim, many of which have, have just been kind of France, France only affairs. So I think with this level of French cinema, I don't think they're necessarily looking for 
someone who has has got their own kind of distinctive directorial imprint and who's going to sort of stray too far from the kind of the core text you know the, the, these films tend to focus on the actors and on the script and visuals and and and, and style is is very much kind of secondary and or, or if it does come it's for it's very subtle and it's in like ironic editing or or, or you know and i think it, it, maybe the style in this film comes from the editing and the way it kind of flips between the two timelines but yeah it's not I, I wouldn't say it's a kind of you know it's a film that if i encountered it on tv i think it would it would still have its kind of i still feel like i was getting the, the maximum impact that it is kind of offering me that, than than seeing it on on a big screen i mean i know that's sort of sacrilegious to say and we should want to watch all these films on the big screen but I, you know i'm not saying tv movie but like it's it's a movie that will that will work on multiple formats i think <laughs> monica do you want to put some scores on this before we move on in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect i guess anticipation might actually be zero i had nothing (laughs) to work off of i'm like lie with me what okay sure i guess and then enjoyment i did quite enjoy it i would put that at about three three and a half just heart-wrenching enough didn't leave me sobbing like uh, brokeback mountain and um yeah i think that's where in retrospect that's where it kind of stays like that was good i i I got what I needed from it. Oh, I, I'm, I'm so with you. This is my classic 3.5 film. <laughs> Glad I watched it. Didn't change my life. David, what about you? Unless you've kind of had a se- seismic shift in the past uh, 30 seconds. Did this change your life? It did not, but I, I, I had a pleasant enough time with it. And I'm not sure it was one that I was kind of le- left its mark on me in the same way as like Brokeback or Call Me By Your Name. But it's sort of like, it'll be a, it's a worthwhile thing to see until the next one of those films gets here. Um, so yeah, probably probably a three, threes across the board for me. Well, next up, it's Film Club. Maurice is a tale of a gay love in the restrictive and repressed culture of Edwardian England. The story follows its main character, Maurice Hall, through university, a tumultuous relationship, struggling to fit into society and ultimately being united with his life partner. Yeah, so this this is a Merchant Ivory film, which is my giant blind spot when it comes to cinema. I think this might be my first Merchant Ivory film because I just assume that these were not for me. Monica, are you kind of a fan of the kind of whole Merchant Ivory world? You know, it's funny you mentioned that because I think that's also a big blind spot for me. And it's something that I, on on the surface, I would totally love. Period drama, forbidden romance, let's go. And it's just one of those movies, like, I look at the runtime when I'm looking when I'm looking on deciding what to watch late at night and I'm like, ah, I'll get around to this. And then it always I'll I'll get around to it, I'll get around to it. And then finally now this was a perfect assignment, a great follow up to lie with me. But it was really lovely. I got to get lost in that world and enjoy it. Yeah, I somehow um, managed to rewatch the BBC adaptation of Pride Prejudice over and over and over again, but um, haven't made time for so many of these kind of English period drama classics. Maurice was your choice, David. Uh, why was it that you wanted us to revisit this one or visit for the first time? In my case, I'm not sure it was my choice. I don't. I don't mean to be like. I, 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 for me, it was. Like, I've never seen it. I, I've never seen it before. And I'm joining you, you guys, in in uh, in they not in it being my first Merchant Ivory film. That, that also is a is a mega blind spot. So we are we are three 
merchant ivory virgins have, having our cherry popped so um yeah um, this is a great so, concept for a new podcast guys <laughs> yeah <laughs> indeed. work through the works of uh, merchant um, ivory yes <laughs> yeah i mean you know i i, I think the same thing I, like i think i had associated merchant ivory with a certain kind of like almost like the sort of french new wave had the sort of cinema du papa that kind of slightly staid institutional cinema that that wasn't doing anything radical i that, that's i kind of always thought that was like what merchant ivory were and you know james ivory had his like you know w- w- was connected with with call me by your name and, and 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 there was a bit of resurgence in this film and you can and you can definitely see like the how, how they how they connect but yeah i was i was a bit i wasn't necessarily sure what to expect with this and and i thought it does actually feel like a kind of it's much more of a sort of literary story driven character driven thing than i than i was expecting and it's very like it's very compelling and it's it's very it's very well edited and 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 it and it really kind of like draws you into the lives of of these two of the character of morris and the character of clive played by uh hugh grant and and their kind of forbidden love affair in the in the sort of uh years sort of the it's the kind of years coming up to the first world war so you kind of you have this shadow overhead kind of knowing where both of them are likely going to be but perhaps not headed but would certainly be like tangentially involved with but yeah it's uh you know it is a sort of epic romance about gay life at a time when that lifestyle was considered illegal and and you know it starts in the in the hall is it is it oxford or cambridge they go to i can i never, thought it was cambridge i can never tell there was it was it cambridge okay yeah there was punting and i was like oh is punting oxford okay yeah anyway you know they, they're dandies in 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 cambridge and they uh roistering friendship turns into this kind of very kind of closeted and and uh and hidden love and morris is is keen to kind of cultivate the love whereas it soon transpires that Clive, having seen one of his old uh, Cambridge muckers sent down for to, you know six months hard labour for being for being basically being entrapped in a kind of clinch with with this kind of paid for kind of gay prostitute, he he he, he kind of freaks out and is like, no, I can't do this. I, I need to be res- I, I need to be respectable. I need to be you know I'm I'm a, I'm, I'm a man of the law. I'm a lawyer, and I, and, I, and 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 I can't do this anymore. And the film, I think, really gets into its own where it went when it sort of. I mean, it it, it gets into its own narratively when when the with the two part ways. Although it's kind of sad in that you're following Morris and and you don't get as much of Hugh Grant because Hugh Grant is so good in this. I, I don't know if you guys would agree. <laughs> I would agree. Oh yeah, fully agree. Yeah, <laughs> part of the heartbreak is, is seeing him leave. Think- <laughs> yeah. It is crazy when you think of Hugh Grant's career as having like all this promise, forgot how to act, worst rom coms you've seen in your entire life, and then kind of good again now. That's a nice arc. Yeah, I mean, I watched this with my wife, and we're just constantly saying like, "Oh my god, Hugh Grant is the kind of the lost asset of British cinema." I mean, he's so charismatic in this, and it's a properly kind of difficult technical, you know, the the script that he's got to, got to deliver, the emotions that he's got to keep inside him, but still project. So so difficult. I guess like you know, you when the opportunities arise, you've got to grab them, but like. You know, it's hard to think of anything that he's done since that is actually so not as nuanced, sort of maybe. Yeah, and, <laughs> and it's it's just weird that it was one of his like you know first screen performances as well. I mean, Paddington too. 
I mean, that's genius in a different way. Not got a lot of hope for him as the Umpalumpus in the upcoming Wonka film, but he may surprise us. <laughs> they, they had that when we were waiting to see Blue Beetle. They had the trailer for that up, up, up on the wall, and I kept seeing him as the Umpalumpa and thinking, "Oh no, Clive, what's become of you?" <laughs> I mean, Monica, for you, even though you're not a Merchant Ivory person, you like a period drama. I mean, this did this feel kind of like top tier? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Top tier, cream of the crop. I mean, incredible. Um, you, I think David mentioned a, a while back about the different curveballs and uh, for Lie With Me, and I just kept getting surprised of how their relationship developed at what else was going on. Merchant Ivory do a really great job of putting you in the place and that fear of being found out. So the stakes are very well established early on. And every stolen glance, every handhold under the coat is potentially so dangerous that you even, you know, kind of may potentially take a gasp whenever it happens because you get so invested in, in the relationship. I, I was I was thrilled fully in love to link it to blue beetle as well tenuously but <laughs> but i think so i mean it's also i think what the film does as well is it really takes time to nurture that all the supporting characters and like you know you have you have both of their families and and their and their lovers and and their friends and 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 it does it really does stuff to bring them make their lives important as well and you have there's lots of little kind of side moments especially with with morris and his sister there's these really like lovely side moments that sort of look at their relationship too and it's sort of it's really like you know you watch a lot of this and think there's fundamental things missing in 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 a lot of these kind of similar similarly inclined films where they're just sort of like cutting it back to this sort of central relationship and and it's a film also that i think you know a, a rarity these days but really you know it's it's like i think it's like two hours 20 the film or something but it's like really really justifies its runtime because you need to, to, for the pair to be away apart for for a long time and have these other adventures and have these other experiences to then come back at the end for this kind of moment like a tiny little kind of almost, almost coda to the film that 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 sort of like ties it all together and and it's a real like yeah it's a, it's a really awesome moment but 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 heartbreaking yeah, I do feel that I'm now going to do a proper deep dive into the whole world of Merchant Ivory. I mean, I, I kind of didn't know that much about them, but like just kind of doing some cursory reading around it, the idea that it was kind of, you know, an Indian Muslim and a Protestant American and gay men, and they came together in this life partnership, creative partnership. Part of me now wants Hugh Grant to star in that biopic, um, and like hopefully do something like as similarly superb as he does in in this film. Before we close up the episode, David, do you want to go first with giving us a non-movie recommendation? Yeah. Because I've been working on Little White Lies hundreds so much, I haven't actually been able to watch that many films lately, but I, I have been having little little kind of dalliances with uh, video games. And there's one that I've been playing called Hades on the, on the Switch. And it's brilliant because it's not one of those games where you're like, oh, I'll just play for 10 minutes. And then you look at the clock and it's like 4.30 a.m. And you're like, oh, Jesus, it's happened again. It's it's it, You can play in little kind of bite-sized chunks. Uh, it, it's sort of set in kind of uh, Greek mythology. And you're the, you're the son of Hades. And you're having an argument with, with your dad. 
and you're, you're basically trying to escape from hell to see your mother Persephone. And it's got, and you're getting the help from all the other Greek gods and goddesses along the way, like Ares and Poseidon. Oh, Poseidon, that's it. Yeah, Poseidon's in there. Athena? And um, Athena, yeah, all of these. You, you, you know them better than I do. Yeah, they're <laughs> all there. And and so and it's really great and fun game. And uh, yeah, it's 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 kind of getting getting me through this, like just sort of taking my mind taking my mind off the off the project, so I can focus on it even more intently. Someone go and destroy David's version of Hades. We need him to be working 24-7 <laughs> on this latest issue. It's too exciting. You're not allowed to sleep. You're not allowed to play. We reject that recommendation, David, even for yourself. But Monica, what about you? Uh, what is your non-movie recommendation for listeners this week? My recommendation would be Aisha Harris's new book, Wannabe, Reckonings with the Pop Culture That Shaped Me. So it's movie adjacent. Uh, I hope that's not cheating. So I ended up picking it up because I did an event with her um, a few nights ago, and I moderated a conversation. And it ended up being so enjoyable. I actually had to start pacing myself because kind of like the threat of a video game you're enjoying too much, you, you know, forget other things you need to do or, oh my gosh, I can't believe it's 4.30 in the morning. I, I've, I've just been really enjoying it. Their personal essays, their reflections on not just movies, but also TV shows and music and how they intersect with her life. It's the way that, you know, sometimes we talk about things, but it's, it's so much more contemplative and reflective. Um, I'm thinking about the way that media has shaped my life and, you know, kind of going with a parallel journey with this book. I'm so, I'm so excited to read that. I absolutely adore her on NPR. I mean, like there's so few people that I think that are able to be like joyful, hilarious and profound. And like, I cannot wait to read that book. That sounds really great. Yeah. Highly recommend. Thank you so much. So if you've got thoughts on these films, you can email us at truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week, a holiday goes horribly wrong in a fire and we spoke to its incredible director, Christian Petzold. A precocious young girl has her independence threatened by the return of her father in Scrapper. And for Film Club, a father and daughter relationship proves just as tumultuous in Paper Moon. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth and Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were David Jenkins and Monica Castillo. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Bob Stankus.